This is episode 78 with Mike Michalowicz. This is Crowdfunding Uncut, the place where creators and entrepreneurs come to learn how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Here's your host, Kirsten Ross. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Crowdfunding Uncut. I'm Kirsten, and I have a treat for you guys today. I was... um, in a cafe about six months ago, sitting down with my good friend, Amanda Bond. And at the time, um, I was going through a breakdown number, what, 56 of the year. Um, I was just like, there were a lot of things in my business that I would consider wrong and I didn't really know how to fix. And she, um, was like, look, uh, you should read this book. It's called the pumpkin plan. It changed my entire outlook on business. And now I'm much happier and, um, just are running things like, the boss that she is. And so I picked up Pumpkin Plan and then realizing that there's this other book that's making a massive movement called Profit First that is written by the same guy. And what I love about the author is Mike Michalowicz, who is actually joining us on the show today. He has an amazing business story that's not necessarily from crowdfunding, but he's an angel investor in several businesses. He's had not only mega successes, but mega failures in business as well. And a lot of what he teaches and what we are going to talk about in this interview is all from real life, what you should and shouldn't do. And I love bringing seasoned entrepreneurs, especially ones that um, coach businesses, like real businesses in, uh, in the world, because what you are doing with crowdfunding is you are setting yourself up to create a business long-term. And a lot of the time, people are first-time entrepreneurs and they don't even realize what they're doing is creating a business through a Kickstarter campaign. And so today we get into a lot of amazing things such as um, expectations management with your backers and how to set yourself up for raving fans and a healthy business. Um, but also because Mike is the... the uh, author of Profit First, which, I mean, all of, all of his books are bestsellers. Um, Mike teaches you how to scale a profitable business. And a lot of the time, you might look at crowdfunding as the wrong approach, which is, okay, well, how can I get successfully funded? So a lot of people are going in thinking that a lot of the journey is going to be um, just getting the marketing out there and getting the backers. But what happens when you've actually raised thousands of dollars and you have to deliver product? And this is where a lot of crowdfunding campaigns fall short. You'll find that um, once you finish your crowdfunding campaign, the more successful you are, you're actually taking on debt. And I say debt because you are essentially borrowing backer money to be able to deliver product. And if you don't set yourself up for good um, cash flow, if you don't estimate your costs properly, if you don't really know what your projections are going to be or your um, the supply chain management, you can actually be setting yourself up for failure in advance. And the bigger your campaign, the bigger you could potentially fail. So we're going to be covering like I don't know. We just, we went over so many different areas and I think this is a, it's not really an episode to talk you out of crowdfunding, but it's, I really like, the more I get into the space, the more I realize how unprepared certain project creators are going into it. And it's not always about marketing. And so I'm really excited to bring on Mike to have a real conversation about some of the risks and how to mitigate them ahead of time. So let's get into the interview. Mike, welcome to the show. Kirsten, thank you so much for having me on your show. 
I know. This is a like a killer introduction, by the way. That was a killer introduction. I had to. Your book was pushed in my face by a friend when I was mid meltdown six months ago. And it's like what I really love about your style um, through a pumpkin plan and profit first is you're not like a stuffy business coach who hasn't been there, done that. Like you are like a James Altucher in that you failed so many times. And from your failures, you have be- made a very successful business, not only successful, but profitable. And you've like become an amazing entrepreneur because you've learned through real life experience. And I just like, I love your, your style is very much like what I resonate with in terms of like, this is the reality of business. And I really wanted to bring you onto the show because you've, you've been there, done that. And I'm just so excited to have you here, you know? Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. But in terms of, yeah, I can go on about you, but I think the best person to tell your story is like for people who are listening, who is Mike Michalowicz? Sure, sure. Yeah, I'll give you the, the quickie. Um, I think I think the benefit you're talking about, you know, how I, the failures I've had, I think the benefit for many entrepreneurs is have the failures up front so that you can then have a, uh, you learn from your mistakes. I had the reverse. I had some early successes, but it jaded me. So built a couple companies. My first business, I started right out of college. I was 22, started a business doing computer networks. It's now called managed services, whatever. It was, you know, it was the computer guy, but fell in love with entrepreneurship during that process. Just the, the, the freedom it gives, not time freedom and not even financial freedom, but the feeling of control. And I just love that, that I could truly choose my own destiny. And that company, it took quite a few years, but I, I got it up to it was on a run for about $2 million when I sold it, uh, a private equity group. Some, some wealthy people bought it. My second company, I started literally the next morning. I sold my first, and the next morning, I had the, the grand vision with a partner, and we started a computer crime investigation business. Uh, our company investigated, uh, in part, the Enron trial, uh, one of Christy Brinkley's divorces, um, some major murder cases. And that company just right place, right time, bootstrapped it. Two and a half years into it, we're on a run for $7 million, and I sold it to a Fortune 500, a company called Robert Half International. They, they own account temps, office temps. But I think the interesting part of my story is what happened next. Uh, it was the sucky part. Is I'm like, oh, I am God's gift to entrepreneurship. I know everything. I am such a genius. And I believed my own shit. Like I thought I knew everything, that I had the Midas touch because I had these successes. And I honestly became a dick. Um, I, I bought like trophy stuff, cars, like high end cars. Cause you know, I had to have the cars. I moved into the, the expensive town, got the big house, uh, joined the, the club where, where the more money you spend, the higher up you're on the wall. But also I knew that I'm so smart. I'm such a genius. I'll start all these businesses. So I became an angel investor with my own money. I was just investing, you know, 20,000 here, 50,000 here, whatever in these different businesses and started 10 companies all around the same time. One was like a jewelry designer that I'm like, Oh, we can do the party model and blow this out. Another one was uh, food delivery, kind of like a blue apron. Um, but really, really early on, this was 10 years ago, um, or eight years ago. Um, and, and a mix of other companies in between one, one was, a uh, in the fitness space. Another one was in manufacturing. And what happened then was a collapse. First of all, I was blowing money, doing stupid things, getting trophies to show my success, which, by the way, is the most unfulfilling thing I've ever found in my life. The, the trophies kind of suck. The second thing is 
as I was investing in companies and they were not getting progress or making progress, I put more money into it. I thought that there'd be a turning moment and this kind of panic ensued of, oh my God, I got to make this work. And that decline was very rapid. After two years, lost every penny I had. Uh, my accountant suggested I apply for bankruptcy. I never filed bankruptcy, but technically maybe that was a better move and had to rewind my my life. I married three children, um, had to come home to my family and just in pure shame admit you know, how much I effed everything up and it was all gone. And we had to leave our house. We had to rent the house. We had to, um, you know, get rid of our possessions. My, my wife, she had a LR three, which, you know, Land Rover sold that and got a Durango that was like 10 years old, this rust bucket. Cause that's all we could get. Uh, my, my, I remember the cars. I had this old BMW that that's what I was driving and literally driving home one day, the engine lit on fire, just blew up. Like that, that's what I had to do. I lost everything. But the, the other thing too, is I went through depression. And I, I think this is one important thing that many entrepreneurs don't talk about that, you know, we will face or have faced stressful times. And some of us, for me, it resulted in depression. I started, I'm not a, I'm not a drinker. I like to talk a big game. I do not really drink much. I was boozing hard and an insomniac. And out of all that, that became kind of this Phoenix for me. It, I, I had to recover from the ashes. I had to find a new way uh, to do things. I had to get a reality check that I'm not, I'm just a regular guy. I'm not this genius. And so I started writing books. I, I strategically positioned them behind me for marketing purposes, but read the but, books. Yeah, right. <laughs> They're awesome. <laughs> so I wrote these four books that if my fingers right spot, that's this toilet paper entrepreneur. And then the pumpkin plan profit first is being re-released. So it's a new cover. And then surge is my most recent book. But I started writing these books, not because I wanted to help others initially. First of all, I got to help myself. Like I couldn't make my businesses consistently profitable. I couldn't, I thought I could grow overnight and I was lucky in the past. Now I didn't know the formula. So I started taking notes. Those became books. And now today I'm a full-time author. This is what I do. I travel the globe. Fortunately, hopefully that keeps up. I travel the globe to teach people what I've learned and hopefully help them avoid the mistakes I made. Yeah. I find it fascinating that you just hit the jackpot early on. And from that, your ego brought you down to (laughs) the level of like from I'm the best in the world to rock bottom and then having to rebuild your entire life from that. And now today you're a world-renowned speaker, a best-selling author. Um, Like what do your businesses look like today? So, um, yeah, so I did a full restart. I, I decided that when I go into business again, that I would do what truly I feel called to do that I'm passionate about that I would truly work with only people I love working with. Um, I actually have a rule, uh, a couple rules. One of them is no dicks allowed because it was something that I became and decided like, first of all, I will never permit myself to behave that way again, obnoxious, believing I'm better than others, but I'm not going to work with other people that have that mindset either. Uh, and I have some other rules I define for myself. I call them the immutable laws, but these are rules I, I guide myself by. So what happened is became an author and, and to me, an author is my full-time business. I, I, I speak and write constantly. I will be writing later today and I'm traveling. Uh, I already have 18 engagements lined up, um, for, for this year. And we, when we just started the year last week, so, uh, and travel starts next week for me. But what happens when, when you're an author, 
Um, as my books gained some popularity, people would come to me and say, I want you to invest in my business. I want to partner with you. And most of them are not a fit, not because they're not good businesses, because I, I don't think I'm a fit. But when there was a good cultural overlap, when when they uh, th- what they were trying to achieve was consistent with the impact I wanted to have, and when, when the values were the same, it was a good move. So today I own uh, three businesses besides being a full-time speaker uh, and writer. I own a manufacturing business business in St. Louis. Uh, it's called Hedgehog Leather Works. We manufacture outdoor gear out of leather. Um, I am a co-owner in a company called Profit First Professionals. My book, Profit First, has really had a big impact. I hope it continues to do that. That's my mission, having a big impact on entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs needed accountants and bookkeepers to help them sustain their profitability. So we started a membership organization, myself and a partner called Profit First Professionals, to help accountants and bookkeepers help in turn their clients achieve profitability. And then I'm also a small-time investor in an augmented reality company in in, uh, Los Angeles. AR is so popular right now. AR and VR, you know? So that'll, that'll be. That must be really fun to work with too. It's really wild. So this is, uh, it's called Augmentecture. And what it does is augmented reality for the architectural industry. In the old school, you used to have like blueprints you'd put on like a table and you'd say, this is what we're going to do. Now you put the blueprint on the table and you take a iPad or something and you put it over it and it converts it to a three-dimensional view. So you can actually experience what the completed building is going to be like just from blueprints. It's pretty wild. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. Yeah. But this is where we're going. And- like speaking of crowdfunding, um, what I love about crowdfunding is you get all these futuristic projects that aren't currently available for sale, like in your Walmart or in your big box retail shops, and you get to see where trends like this are going. And I know AR and VR are becoming; they're gaining a lot of po- popularity on those platforms. Oh yeah, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And I guess like I want to get into crowdfunding because this is a crowdfunding. Um, podcast and some people listening are like, okay, great. So he knows how to run a business. So what does that have to do yeah, with me? Give me the real <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, what is it? Yeah. So I believe that crowdfunding needs to be used. If you're in the physical product space, it needs to be used as a long-term strategy to create a business. And when you launch a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, you have to have long-term strategy in mind so that should you raise half a million dollars or, Hey, become a coolest cooler where you're raising 10 million plus that right. you have a, a long-term strategy to actually turn it into a business and you act that way. And why I wanted to bring Mike on the show is because as I was reading the pumpkin plan and profit first, he, I got to the end of the first chapter of profit first and he had completely changed how counting should be done in my mind. I kept like me personally, I would see um, my, like my clients would raise a bunch of money on crowdfunding. And if they don't budget properly, they don't see that once Indiegogo pays them their 300 to $400,000 that they have to, in a, in a couple months, um, buy inventory, they have to pay for shipping. They need to pay for customs. And all of a sudden, like, well, I'm not going to mention which client, but Having raised three to four hundred thousand dollars um, a couple months after hiring PR firm, staff, office, all of a sudden he got hit with an inventory bill of one hundred and eighty thousand dollars, plus all this other stuff, and he had to find external investment to 
be able to actually deliver on the promises he made. And it made me realize that, like, even looking at my own behaviors, that if you don't budget properly, you having a crowdfunding campaign fail is not about not getting funded. It's about how you estimate your costs and budget and make sure that you allocate certain things accordingly so that you don't shoot yourself in the foot later on. And this is a huge problem in the crowdfunding industry. Like, cause Mike, you and I were chatting before, cause I asked you if you had ever backed mm-hmm. a project. So yeah. can we talk a bit about your experience as a backer and if those campaigns have delivered yet? Yeah. So I've done a few and, and some have delivered. Um, but I did, it's ironic. This, the story you just shared about that $400,000 raise and then the guy couldn't deliver because he didn't have the inventory. I backed a campaign like that and it's appropriate to share their name either. It was, uh, a, a, an item that I actually am not, I was going to give as a gift for the Christmas holidays to one of my kids. And this was in the summer of 2016 that was coming out and I wanted to give it to my son uh, you know, five months later in, in Christmas time. And, uh, the, the launch was very compelling. They had their prototype they're showing. It's, it's amazing. And they said, we, well, you know, we anticipate it'll take two to three to deliver. So you'll have it months before Christmas. And, uh, then at that time they emailed out and said, whoops, we made a mistake. Uh, we're not going to make it, but it'll still be right before Christmas. And then there was silence. Uh, and then nothing happened on Christmas and now they've started their communication again. And what I observed was I, I, some, I, to some degree expected it because I, I know the entrepreneurial game myself and when people, anyone is given a large sum of money, if they don't have the experience to manage money, I, I believe money is a fire of habits, or at least we just go down the path that we expect to be appropriate. So this guy, no entrepreneurial background, got a large sum of money to a similar tune for, say, $400,000. And I suspect, I don't know the backstory completely, but I suspect he went out and said, well, well, successful entrepreneurs have a nice office and all these things and got caught by the same thing. Inventory, manufacturing delays, doesn't understand the supply chain. So for him to deliver his final product, it was a combination of all these different suppliers, didn't understand. You can't finish your product. Uh, and, and he's been caught short now. He doesn't have enough money to fund it through. St- the one thing he did correctly, though, is his, his regular communication. And clientele are very, very forgiving, I think, in these circumstances, if they know what's going on. So he's invoked his regular communication of where they stand. He's accepted the responsibility for wh- what's happening. He continues to commit to deliver, but he's still making one mistake. He's still over-promising. When he re- resets and says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make it for Christmas— he could have said, you know what, I'm going to need four more months to do this and then deliver it in two. But right now he's like, I need three more weeks. I need two more weeks. And he keeps on inching along. And I think it's slowly diminishing the trust that his customer base has for him. Yeah. I've, um, a couple of my earlier campaigns, they are now delayed, of course. Um, but I didn't, <laughs> disclaimer, I didn't advise on the fulfillment side. But they, the way that they're communicating is Oh, it just makes me so angry because it's like the entrepreneurs are so scared to let the customer down. So they're just drip feeding them. Like if they know in their head that they'll be able to deliver six months late, they're not going to say that. They say, oh, oh, we're missing a part because of Chinese New Year or, you know, whatever. And they just, people get more and more annoyed as they're like, okay, well, three months ago you promised 
and we're now four months delayed or, or whatever. And if people are right. just completely honest, people will like, sure, you'll get the odd upset one, but you'll get a hell of a lot less upset backers if you're just like, you know, we screwed up. This is a new timeline. And just like, right. oh, it's so frustrating. You know? It's so frustrating. So this is communication 101. So one of my passions is behavioral sciences, basically how we communicate how we behave, what influences ourselves, you know, the head junk. I'm actually going to write a book about it. It's probably still three or four years out, but I'm, I'm compiling the thesis. And the one element about that communication where so many people go wrong is the setting of expectations and the managing of expectations. The, the process you explained is the normal one. Say, say you and I plan to get together for lunch today. And I said, hey, Kirsten, I'll be up in Toronto. You know, let's meet so-and-so. I'll meet you there at noon. Well, you arrive there at noon. And if I show up at, say, 12.15 or 12.30, you're going to be like disappointed. You're like, I thought we meeting at noon. So what I'll do to navigate that is right at noon, right when you're sitting down at the restaurant, I will call you on your cell phone and say, oh, I'm running late. And then I'll give you an excuse. You know, like, um, there's really a lot of traffic. Uh, you know, I'll give you some reasons to justify why I'm late. So I'm telling you in the moment, not proactively, I'm telling you at noon, I won't be there at noon, which you already realized. And then I set an expectation. I'll say, well, I'll be there at 12, 15, like 15 more minutes. So I've set this new expectation knowing that if everything came into alignment on this planet, it would still take me a half hour to get there. And so then I get there at 1240, 1250, and you're like, what the hell? And I'm afraid of pissing you off. So I don't even call you to tell you I'm running even later than I expected. So it's this constant degradation of expectations. I make it worse and worse and will deliver. Now, that exact same scenario, we could reverse it. Say you and I are going to grab lunch. I say hey, this morning, hey, let's meet at, at noon in Toronto at some restaurant. You're like, great. And then I realize, listen, I, I'm going to run late. Uh, I, I got other appointments. They're, they're banged up together. I call you now at 9 or 10 in the morning and say, listen, Kirsten, um, I, I'm going to be running late. I don't think 12 is going to work. Can we reset to 1 o'clock? Now, here's the thing. In the moment, you're not going to be like, oh, that's great because you planned your day. You're going to feel a little bit of what I call a tinge for a moment. Say, ah. But because I gave you adequate knowledge in advance, you can adjust your schedule. So I'm giving you the courtesy for you to adjust. Then if we agree to one o'clock, my job now is still trying to get there at noon. I'm going to run into traffic and run late. But if I now arrive at 1240, the same time as the other scenario, and you walk in at one, I'm there, I'm ready to go. I have a, you know, a cup of coffee waiting for you. And, and, and we're off to a great start. So when we set an expectation, the moment we know we're not going to be able to deliver on it, we must communicate that to our customers, to the other person. The more notice we give them preemptively, the better we're serving them. And in generally, they'll appreciate it more and more. Secondly, now we have to set the new expectation when we're going to deliver. The biggest mistake people make is they, they promise heaven and earth again, and they fail to deliver, and they start this chain. It's, it's the chain of death. It's a downward spiral. So when you set that new expectation, set it on the outer fringe. It's still got to be reasonable. I can't say, hey, let's meet for lunch in Toronto. I'm not going to make it at noon. Let's schedule it for, for three weeks from now um, or, or, or seven, 17 years from now. I can't put it so far out. You know, We have something urgent we want to talk about. So I need to set it out, but on an outer realm of expectation where I know I can deliver on this next promise. I love that. And I think that, uh, you know, should write a book on this. Hey, 
want to pause for a second and thank the guys over at BackerKit for sponsoring this episode. BackerKit is a crowdfunding fulfillment software tool that helps you manage your customer information and fulfillment after your campaign is done. We're using them on one of my campaigns right now, and we are already getting sales after the campaign because you are able to use their tools to actually upsell your backers onto future perks that may, they may not have had a chance to purchase during your campaign. They're not only that, but they will help you um, track any uh, backer credit cards that may have defaulted and customer surveys and just managing all that so that you don't have the alternative, which is managing spreadsheets. They make the fulfillment process easy and streamlined so that data doesn't fall through the cracks and you don't waste your time. And they're an amazing service. Uh, for the uncut community, they have actually uh, given us a 50% off of their, their setup fees. So what you want to do is head over to backerkit.com and use the code uncut at checkout. That's U-N-C-U-T. And the guys will be able to hook you up with the discount there. Um, and for more information, go to backerkit.com. Just the more I work in the space, the more I see backers getting screwed because of yeah. bad communication. And it is going to destroy the crowdfunding industry if we don't deal with this. And so, like, I really, uh, and audience, if you want me to write a piece on this, like how to properly set expectations around your backers and your campaign, you're going to be the one in a hundred campaigns that delivers on time, which just think of what that can do for you online when you go to launch on Amazon or Shopify, like your customers are going to love you and you're burning that bridge by um, doing what Mike said you shouldn't do, you know, like it's. Well, Kirsten, ah. Zappos, Zappos use this expectation management strategy to grow a billion dollar business. Uh, let me just give you a comparison. What they did was when you ever order shoes from Zappos by any chance? I have not, but I know the story. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you know the story. You order shoes from Zappos. They're, they're known for customer service. They will say your order will be delivered in five days, but then you'll get FedEx overnight. And anyone that's bought from Zappos that's watching right now, you'll be told you're a VIP and so forth, so I hate to burst your bubble. But they do this for everybody. But here, here's the interesting thing. Their competition, when you order the shoes, it's the exact same shoes, it's the exact same price. The competition says we'll deliver the shoes overnight. And they FedEx them overnight. The thing is, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes FedEx, you know, a storm comes through, a delay happens, and the second it happens, and maybe it's only 1% of the time, but the moment it happens that those shoes aren't delivered on the promised time, it's an extra day, that competitor sucks. Now, Zappos has the same distribution chain. They use FedEx too. But they say it'll deliver, be delivered in five days. You get overnight most of the time. You're three. Sometimes it takes two or three days to get to, the, to you because it's been delayed in the FedEx system, but you're still thrilled because it's earlier than expected. So Zappos has this reputation of always delivering quickly, fast, excellent customer service. But really what it is is excellent customer expectation management. There's the expectations on the outer uh, edge, and they set themselves up for success now. Most of us, we promise the world and we deliver Nothing or very little compared to it. And even if you deliver an amazing thing, but you promised more than you deliver, you still. So it's not what you're doing and delivering. It's the expectations you're setting. Push them out. Push them out. Yeah, I agree. And this goes back to um, a custom, uh, conversation I have with had with a client of mine. I'm like messing up the present and past tense here. Uh, but <laughs> like six or nine months ago when we're putting together the reward packages, the founder's like, oh, I really want to say six months for delivery. And I said, okay, can realistically, can you do six? He's like, no. I'm like, okay. 
I'd rather have you do nine and deliver in right. seven. He's like, right. But nine might deter people from buying. I'm like, yeah, but if you know, yeah, so, exactly. Uh, yep. That's what I call, I call that the tinge yeah. is our fear. And the reason we set great crazy expectations is if, if we don't and our competition is uh, saying these crazy expectations, we're never going to get the sale. So you do have to prepare for that. And really, it's simply through a justification. When you buy from Zappos, and they say it takes five days, they'll justify it by saying, we want to make sure we pick the proper inventory, we double inspect the shoes, and so forth. And then they'll say, if you need the shoes earlier, and please tell us, and we'll make sure we expedite it. So they tell the client the justification why it's going to take longer than the competition, and then they say, well, there, there is the option to deliver on what you want if it's different. Now, 90% of the customers say, I don't need the shoes tonight. I, you know, five days is fine. Now that the customer and Zappos is in agreement, Zappos now FedEx is overnight and they win. So that person says, you know, I don't want to say nine months because everyone else is saying six, I'm going to lose business. What, what's the reason? Now, first of all, it is the reality. You can't do it in six. So you're a liar if you say it. But secondly, you say, we want to put the proper time to manufacture your product properly or to inspect it or double inspect it. Here's all the steps we go through. And if that doesn't satisfy you in the delivery times, please tell us we can always make an exception for you. The vast majority of clients will, other clients will appreciate the honesty. Some clients will say, I need an expedite. And then you simply expedite. But the majority will accept your terms. And now again, you set yourself up for a win. Deliver in seven months, or even if you get delayed and it takes eight months, you still win. Your competition loses because they're promising something they can't do. I agree. You are preaching to the choir here. Um, uh, amen. <laughs> so I'm curious if you were to start a business and you decided that crowdfunding is right for you, taking yeah. everything you know and knowing about supply chain management, cash flow, and, and all this, um, how would you approach a business? Like, how would you approach your product that you're going to launch in crowdfunding in terms of cash flow, knowing that it's a long-term game for you? Yeah. So first I would, uh, a find a simple product. So complexity. So I know the manufacturing space cause I, I own a manufacturer. Every time you add a single variable, one more part, there's actually an exponential impact because it's now it's a multiple. If this part, uh, it has to combine that part. There's multiple ways it won't work. So one new addition can cause a lot more variability in the problems I have and therefore can extend how long it takes to manufacture problems. So a product always supersedes a complex one from manufacturing and it'll shorten the time to deliver. That's a big part. But the second thing is, I, as best as I can, I won't just do a prototype. I will do a small cycle pre-crowdfunding. Maybe I'll try to get people, before I go on crowdfunding, I'll get family and friends and say, listen, ultimately I'm going to go for crowdfunding, but I want to do a small batch production first. It's going to be more expensive on my side, but I want just help covering the cost. I'll deliver the product to you because I want to prove the manufacturing process. Most people prove a single product, like, but, but they don't figure out the entire manufacturing chain. One example is this. I, I like to cook. I actually like to bake like pies and stuff. I know it's kind of weird, but I, I can make a killer apple pie, killer apple pie. Um, but when you make one apple pie, the ingredients uh, and this, the cooking times and all that stuff is one setting. If I make a hundred, literally everything changes. The, actually, the mixture actually changes because now it's a manufacturing process. It doesn't. You don't just take what you did one time and amplify it out. 
there's there's things you got to shift around. So a lot of crowdfunders don't understand that. So what I would do is if I'm going to make a product, I'm going to run a small batch in an actual manufacturing environment to see if I can repeat the process over and over. Only then will I go for crowdfunding. A couple other things I would do, I would seed the crowdfund. Like I wouldn't go in there and just reach out to everyone and say, hey, here's an idea. I'd first get those people that backed me initially, my friends and family saying, can you go on and back me again? Uh, because if I if people see other people doing something, it forms social proof. We see there's already investors. I'm much more likely to raise money. If I just went out to the community at large and try to raise money and not anyone's invested yet, no one wants to be the first investor. So I would seed it. And of course, the last thing is, is the and probably the most important though, is the expectation management. I would tell people not just the wonderful thing I'm making. I would also tell them the challenges I've had in getting to this point, and I'm not promising perfection. I may have more bumps and bruises, but if they decide to join me, I promise I'm fully committed to wowing them. And that's called the Phoenix effect, by the way. If, if you watch particularly action movies, all action movies use what's called the Phoenix effect. And what that is, is you start off at a high point and then you go through a low point and then you do what's called the climb. So uh, an example, you know, Tom Cruise or something, would be in a movie and the opening scene is always perfection. He's walking down the most perfect, beautiful beach. His family's beautiful. His dog is beautiful. The sunset is beautiful. But then you hear all of a sudden that pop of a gun in the distance. You know, his wife takes a bullet to the head. Then these thugs come down the beach. They start beating his kids. They take them to kidnap them. You know, then the worst part, they, they kick the dog. Like, oh, did you have to do that? And of course they beat the crap out of Tom Cruise. Then the ending of those scenes is something like Tom Cruise laying there, bloodied face, ocean wave washes the water away with the blood going into the ocean, and then they fade, and the rest of the movie is the revenge. He's going to get those thugs back. He's going to recover his children. He's going to revenge his wife's death, all these things. And what happens is the audience, as we watch this, we rally for him. The reason we rally for him is we saw perfection, but we saw the decline, and now somewhere between there, it connected with us. We had that perfection for ourselves. Uh, we never have been that low in life where our family's murdered and we're beat up and all this stuff, but we've probably had somewhere in between there emotionally. So now we can connect with the hero and we, we want his success. Too many businesses, especially crowdfunding, they only do that perfect scene. Everything's perfect. We're so amazing. Everything's great. Th that actually causes envy. People are like, really? You're that perfect? Your life's that perfect? We actually want to disconnect with that. And the second we see a flaw, we're like, see, you do suck. And so customers will jump on it. Conversely, if we do the pure pity thing, I've seen this too. My life is miserable. My product sucks. I suck. Everything sucks. Will you be, please invest in me anyway? We're like, no, I, I don't want to be associated with a loser. I mean, a total abject loser. But someone that has a strong vision, has faced the struggles, that's someone I want to rally behind. So my crowdfunding page would say, here's the grand vision of my product. This is the way I want to change the world. This is the thing I want to do. But- as I've been making it, I've been flawed. I've made mistakes. It hasn't worked out perfectly. There's been times that I actually wanted to just go in the corner crying and give up because it sucked. But I've kept on moving forward. The product's not perfect yet, but it's getting there. There's a few people that already have, are enjoying the product. Some people have told me ways to improve it. I'm getting closer and closer. Are you willing to join me? Because together, we can achieve this great vision. And that becomes something that people want to associate with. And they'll give you the luxury or the freedom to make mistakes because They'll be prepared for it. They're not expecting absolute perfection. 
what you touched on that last point, um, just so people can really understand that the way you say, I want to do a beta run of a product that's going to a figure out supply chain, figure out costs, make sure you're working with the right people. Um, but it's also, if there are any flaws in your product in terms of like people see a feature they like, that's like really weird or they don't like the texture or they don't like certain parts of it. You can get people really using it and make sure that version 2.0, when you crowdfund it has a lot less of those flaws that you actually didn't realize people hated or they want more of something like being able to experience the product is, I, I believe like, I love when people are, they come to me and they're like, look, I've, I've already done a beta run. I have 50 people using this. We have a bunch of stuff we're changing. Um, which is fantastic. And the fact that in your crowdfunding campaign, you've already assumed that they have a product ready to go. Um, a lot of people crowdfund too early. They're like, I have this really cool idea and here are some sketches of it. And then, oh man, that's the worst. You don't want to crowdfund for a prototype, but having a product, you're like, look at this beautiful phone. You know, we've been working on it for two years. We've had some flaws, but people are using it and they love it. And these are the changes that we want you to be a part of. Like having something proof of concept not only shows you can deliver, but it's going to make for a healthier campaign. You know, I, I was saying that people speak the truth through their wallets and not their words. I The grand mistake I've seen with people considering introducing a new product or a new service has been that they trust what people say and not what the people do. So uh, this is a true story. I have a friend who decided to go into the meatball business. He wanted to be a meatball manufacturer. I love and, that. And he, <laughs> his name, ironically, is also Mike. And he went to make these meatballs and he talked to his friends and family and said, what do you think of my meatballs? And they're like, oh, it's great. I love it. He gave me a meatball. I tasted it. And I was like, oh my God, man, this thing sucks. And he got so offended by me. And I said, listen, man, I think I may be the only friend, you ha- true friend you have here. Other people are saying your product is great because they're your friend and they don't want you to feel bad. I'm telling your product sucks because that's truly my interpretation of your product. And I don't want to see you have a failed business. He didn't trust people's words. I mean, he did trust people's words and went in and he put to the tune of like 75 grand. For this guy, it was, it was his, pretty much his life savings. He set up his kitchen. He did all these things and started think, uh, making these things and then couldn't sell it. So the key is this. Don't ask people what they think. Ask them to put money down. And the whole game changes. When, when he made those meatballs, he could have said, hey, I, I know you're interested in my meatballs. Are you willing to buy them? And then people are like, uh, well, you know, I, I maybe a couple because you're a friend of mine. But if you keep going back to them at a certain point, they're like, I uh, no. But if they keep coming back to you and say, I love these, and they want them proactively and spend money, that's proof it's working. So we need to get that small beta group of people, not their words. We actually need to measure their wallets. Are they willing to on their own accord? If you have that, they are showing through their action. You have something that's going to work on a Kickstarter campaign or some kind of you know crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, that also goes to show don't trust what your friends say when you actually go to validate your idea through customer interviews, find other people who will be brutally honest with you, you know? Friends suck. Friends suck in this regard. Friends are awesome, but friends suck in this regard. It's like if I I had a booger hanging out right now, for you to say something actually is uncomfortable. Because it, it, it's a social mechanism. If, if you said, "Oh, Mike, dude, you look, you look freaking nasty, Mike. What, is, what's the crap? <laughs> on, what's that shit on your face? Like, what you got a, like a, a racer stuck up your nose?" For you to say that, 
puts you in a very uncomfortable situation. What if I'm offended? What if I become uncomfortable, make you uncomfortable? So what we do is our actions actually justify our feelings. And what we do is we actually cover up our eyes and we like, we don't want anyone, we don't want to look at that booger one more time. So we look down. So for me to judge how you feel about me is actually to watch your behaviors, your wallet. If I measure your words, there's this social appropriateness that we feel miscomplied by, and it can be very distracting. When I try to sell stuff, friends are the last people I go to. I know friends are going to do me a favor and so forth, and they say what they won't do me a favor. I go to people I don't know. People I don't know have no problem saying, dude, you got a booger in your face. You're disgusting. So go to people you don't know. If you can convince them and they want to buy from you, particularly if you have a product or a service that's a repeatable purchase and they come back on their own accord, that's the big one. People you don't know coming back to you on their own accord, then you got something. I love that. And like, I feel like you and I can go on for another two hours about how to run a business properly, but oh, totally. going to end it here. But I do have uh, two more questions. The first one is sure. uh, if you could go back and do it all over again, what is one piece of advice you would give your 20 year old self? If I could do everything over again, I would um, tell myself that the mo- the money is not, it's not about the money. And, uh, it's kind of weird because my shirt even says profit first and all that stuff. It's not about the, the thrills that money give you. It's about the sustainability. Like money can make your business have a massive impact. And listen, I'm not saying live a hermit's life either. I think we should live a life that's financially free and we should have an exciting life. But when the priority is I want to get that new next new car and I want to show, show off my trophies, uh, that's when you've lost the plot. And I lost the plot. So I'm, I'm ashamed about that phase of my life. I'm embarrassed about it. And I go back and tell myself, I don't know if I would have listened back then, though, to myself. I'm like, screw you. I want more money for me. Uh, so I, I hope yeah. I will listen to myself. And the thing is, though, you wouldn't be who you are today without that. True. True story. So, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I find... So this might be a hard question for you because all of your books are fantastic depending on what stage of business you're in. If someone is listening to this right now and they're thinking, great, I have to get, just get more from this guy. If they're a first time entrepreneur getting ready to crowdfund, what is the best one of your books you'd recommend for them to get started with? Yeah. So the Profit First, which is being re-released, it used to be a blue book. You see it's white now. Uh, Penguin Books is re-releasing it. It's a revised and expanded edition. That one, hands down, is my most impactful book. Uh, it will change the way you manage your money once and for all, and it'll make it so much easier and so much more profitable. I suggest everyone reads that. But Toy Paper Entrepreneur, which is right there. Toy Paper Entrepreneur is my first book, and I wrote it for the startup business that didn't have enough money, didn't have enough resources, didn't have enough funds, don't have the experience or the education, how to get started and started right. So I'd actually probably recommend Toilet Paper Entrepreneur for the, the brand new startup, but definitely read Profit First like the next morning because we got to make sure your business manages the money properly. Or else you don't have a business. End of story. Oh. You just have a lot End of story. debt, you know, because that's what crowdfunding is. <laughs> yeah. And that sucks. Been there too. Lots of debt sucks. Yeah. Uh, so where can people find more information about you? Is there a website you want them to go to? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. So uh, it's my name, MikeMichalowitz.com. Here's the deal. Two ways to get there real easy. One is go to Google, because Mike Michalowicz is like, I get it. It's Polish. It's huge. It's crazy. Go to Google and type in Mike, M-I-K-E, and then spacebar Mick, M-I-C. 
and when you see the longest, most Polish name on the planet drop down, that's me. Mike Amazing. Uh, or you can go to uh, my nickname in high school was Mike Motorbike. So just type in MikeMotorbike.com. I'll forward you on to my That's Dallas. incredible. Uh, I'm also going to link to this in the show notes. So oh, perfect. By the way, I have all my books, you know, chapter downloads, all that stuff's up there. I, I blog. I have my own podcast. But also, I used to write for the Wall Street Journal, so you can get all my Wall Street Journal articles, um, which are, I, I think they're pretty good, pretty powerful stuff. All right. Well, if they're as good as, uh, wait, if your writing is as good there as it is in your books, uh, I'd recommend it. Kirsten, you complete me. I know. Heart. <laughs> oh, that was Ew. <laughs> it's like, let's just go super dits for a minute, but kidding. I can play dits pretty well, though, to be honest. I'd be like super smart and then like, OMG, you're like so cool. Okay, before people hang up, I'm going to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this has been awesome. Thanks, Christian. Yeah. All right, guys. Are you uh, getting ready to crowdfund for your thing? Uh, even after, hopefully this interview has not deterred you. But if you want to find out more whether crowdfunding is right for you or not, you should head over to crowdfundinguncut.com. I have a full six-month product launch checklist that I've used to successfully uh, raise multiple seven figures with my clients. So it's a step-by-step. It's a freebie. That's crowdfundinguncut.com. And again, if you love the show, please do head over to iTunes crowdfunding uncut and leave a, um, an honest review because it does help other listeners find the show. And this is very valuable information. So thanks a lot guys. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launch pad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launch pad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launch pad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.